It's the blood of Jesus that goes between us. And that will make more sense, I think, as we go on in our study tonight. But I just want to plant that seed. It's the blood of Jesus that goes between us. Between you and me. Between you and and each person in this fellowship. Between you and, and friends and family and specifically those who know the Lord and have given their lives to the Lord. It's the blood of Jesus that goes between us. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 22 tonight. We are almost done with this book. Joshua 23 and 24 we'll cover next Wednesday night and finish it out. Uh, and those two chapters are awesome. It's Joshua's farewell address to the people. Similar to Moses' farewell address at the end of Deuteronomy, now Joshua is at the end of his life and will speak to the people before he dies and is gathered to his fathers. But we're in Joshua 23 tonight and it's the last story of the book of Joshua. And it's a very interesting story. And it's very practical because it's a story that speaks of the human condition. It is a story that you and I very well could have been caught up in at the day, at the time, and that you may have been caught up in a story similar to this just within the last couple of three days of your life. I think you will find it familiar. And so, Lord, as we prepare to study your word tonight, we invite, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us into the truth. And we rely on you, Spirit of Jesus, mind of Christ that we have been given, to give us clarity and insight and understanding to your word, Father. We don't pretend to try and figure it out or imply meanings on our own. We only ask that your Spirit would do that. We realize that we hold in our hands a very powerful, powerful book. A power tool, as it were, that that we need to be trained to use and, and understand. And I pray, Father, as we go through these studies week in and week out, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday night, or Tuesday mornings with, with the women, Tuesday nights with the men, Thursday evenings at different times when people are opening the Word and studying and desiring to know You better, I pray, Father, that You will teach us and equip us to be workmen, rightly handling the Word of Truth, We don't need to be ashamed. And I pray tonight that handling of the word is is, is more effective among us. As your spirit again leads us into this study. Guide us now, Father. And write these things on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Assumptions lead to accusations which lead to altercations. Assumptions lead to accusations which lead to altercations. It was all a big surprise. He bought his wife tickets for a Christmas carol down in Seattle. She was excited about it. A special date night just for her and her husband. The two of them were going to go by themselves. No, Jeff already left, so he won't be here to know that it's about him. Oh, I shouldn't have said that out loud. Just this last holiday season... Um, Jeff bought tickets for Penelope. I didn't even ask their permission to use this story, but it's so funny to me. Unbeknownst to Penelope, Jeff also bought tickets for White Christmas. 
when they went on sale, and which was a you know a special deal just this last this last December playing in Seattle. And so he changed their date night for another night that was going to be a surprise to her that she knew nothing about. And because he knew that their date night was now going to be to go see White Christmas, and they had these tickets to a Christmas Carol, he got on the phone and invited his brother and some other friends to go with them. But all Penelope knew was that now his brother and other friends were coming with them on their date night. There he is, he's coming back in. I'm talking about you, man. (laughs) Telling a little story about some tickets purchased this last December. Anyway, here's what happened. Penelope began to get a little frustrated. Because the whole reason they were going to see A Christmas Carol was to go as a couple, just the two of them... And now Jeff's brother and his wife and other people are starting to come and their date night was messed up. She didn't know about White Christmas. And I I remember standing in our kitchen talking with Penelope and she was frustrated about this. She's like, what is my husband doing? This was supposed to be our night. She knew nothing of the surprise. And she was getting frustrated and she was making assumptions about what he must have been thinking until finally, finally, she discovered that he had a surprise for her and they did have that Nate night but she didn't know what he was thinking she didn't understand what the motives were assumptions lead to accusations that lead to altercations and this is so typical of what we do in our lives we get it into our head somehow that we know what other people's motives are that we understand what's going on in their minds and in their thinking Whether it be a husband or wife, and that's a pretty typical place for it to happen. I can't tell you how many times I've assumed things that Cheryl was doing or thinking, and I only discovered later that I was absolutely wrong. But this is the story we're looking at tonight. It's the story in Joshua 22. A story of a people who make some assumptions, some speculations. It's hearsay gone haywire. And as they assume what's going on, they begin to accuse. And as they accuse, then they get ready for a major altercation that could be avoided completely if the assumptions hadn't been made in the first place. Two words that concern me in ministry and in life. Assumptions and speculations. Because they tend to get us into trouble. Now I'm going to read this whole chapter to you and then we're going to come back and make some observations about it tonight. It's not a long study but it's, it's interesting and it's important and I believe it has some, some relevance not only to all of us personally and individually but I believe for this church fellowship and because of this fact I almost saved it for Sunday. Then I thought well it's, it's Easter and we'll talk about the resurrection so we're going to talk about that on Sunday and you're getting this tonight. Joshua 22, verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore turn now and go to your tents. To the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan River. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God. And walk in all his ways. And keep his commandments. And hold fast to him. And serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their tents. Now, to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua gave possession among their brothers westward beyond the Jordan. 
So that's why we talk about the half-tribe of Manasseh. Half was on the east side of the Jordan. The other half was on the west side of the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he said to them, Return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with the very many clothes. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead to the land of their possession which they had possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses now when they came to the region of the Jordan which is in the land of Canaan the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh they built an altar there by the Jordan a large altar in appearance the word large there is literally great to sight an altar that was great to sight and the sons of Israel heard it said behold the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. These are their brothers. These are the other two and a half tribes. Verse 13, Then the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one chief for each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel, and each one of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. And they came to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead and they spoke with him saying thus says the whole congregation of the Lord what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day Although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban? And wrath fall on the whole congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel. The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows. And may Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or if it was an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built, built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord or if to all offer a burnt offering or grain offerings on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. In other words, may the Lord decide between us who's right and who's wrong. Verse 24, But truly we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, In time to come your sons may say to our sons, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you, you sons of Reuben and sons of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. 
Therefore we said, let's build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather it shall be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, and with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Therefore we said, It shall also come about, if they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, then we shall say, See, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice. Rather, it is a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering or for sacrifice, besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. So, when Phineas the priest and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in your midst, because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel, and they brought back word to them. And the word pleased the sons of Israel. And the sons of Israel blessed God. And they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness. Literally, Ed. The altar's name was Ed. That's what witness is in the Hebrew, Ed. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Again, this is a story of hearsay gone haywire. Had the children of Israel on the west side of the Jordan simply sent one person over to find out, hey, what's up with this altar, everything would have been okay. There wouldn't have been an altercation as as there was. There wouldn't have been a problem at all. Had they just sent somebody to find out what is the truth. Instead, assumptions led to accusations which led to altercation. Instead, you've got this emissary team over there with a railing assumption about what the people on the east side of the Jordan are doing. And the people back in, in, on the west side are all geared up for war. They've got the armor on, the swords out. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan and wipe out their brothers for something they don't even have the truth about because of an assumption. How do we get to that divided place? Well, you know the story well. The children of Israel were set free from the bondage of Egypt. And as you go back, several chapters, several books in the Bible, we, we can play the story out. Remember how this, how this works. That the children of Israel were in bondage and they cried out to the Lord. And they were rescued from Egypt. God sent Moses and Aaron to lead them out. And it's so similar to the way that we get led out of the bondage of sin in the world, Egypt being the picture of the world, and that bondage being a picture of our own sin, and we're led out just like the children of Israel. But as the people left Egypt, the first major event that happened was they crossed that Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea for them. And Paul says, you know, that's, that's kind of like us. We get pulled out of bondage with the world, and we cross the Red Sea. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that water baptism for us is similar to the Red Sea 
for the people of Israel as they went through the Red Sea. So we are baptized and moved through ourselves. But then, then the children of Israel, after going through the Red Sea and coming to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, they go through a 40-year detour as the Lord further develops their obedience and faithfulness and dependency on Him because they're disobedient and they are faithless and they're trying to be independent and they don't want to go into the land when they come to Kadesh Barnea. So the Lord sends them back. Forty years they wander. And that's another interesting parallel to our lives. The Lord often will take us into the wilderness to deepen our dependency. Draws us into places where we don't have the answers, where we don't feel like we have the understanding or the wisdom to go forward. And He does it so that we will be dependent on Him. That we'll learn how to trust Him. Well, after 40 years of wandering, the story continues, but they came to a second body of water. The Jordan River. And that pictures another baptism. Jesus called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, many of you know I was not raised in a charismatic or Pentecostal church. You may be familiar with that. I was raised in a, in a more oh, stolid, conservative, sometimes legalistic Bible teaching church. And the Bible teaching was good. We clung to it. We hung on it. That was, that was everything. But there was no involvement of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through the apostles back then. Not now. Not in the world today. Other than simply through the Word of God. Well, let me tell you something. It's been through the study of the Word of God that I've come to believe otherwise. Because the Bible explains and expresses clearly that the Holy Spirit is active in the world today. Active among us. That we are actually given gifts. I sat in a staff meeting at a church not long ago, back in California, where we were talking about uh, how people were being called to ministry. And, and I used a phrase there that was a somewhat new phrase for me to use. And I have been studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and on in 1 Corinthians 14. And I used the phrase spiritual gifts. And I said, we really ought to be looking at people's spiritual gifts to determine where they are in ministry. And one of the staff people across the table from me said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with you using that phrase. I'm like, ministry? <laughs> no, spiritual gifts. You know, that, that's, that's not what our, this church is about. We're not about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and it struck me as odd because Paul spent quite a bit of time talking about the spiritual gifts, explaining the gifts to us, defining them, naming several of them. Why would he do that if it was just for then and not for now? Well, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit in our journey through Joshua because Joshua and the people coming into the Promised Land are a fantastic picture of walking into and learning to live the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life. And I'm not talking about going off the deep end. I'm not talking about doing strange things. I am talking about living a life that is grounded in the Word of God but empowered by the Spirit of God who is real and if we don't believe that, then what we're doing is we're rejecting what Scripture itself teaches. And we're denying ourselves the power. 
Paul put it this way when he wrote to young pastor Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, In the last days, difficult times will come. He describes those difficult times, but in the fourth verse of 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, People will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They've denied its power. Where does the power come from to live the life God has called us to? Where does the power come from to grow in our faith and our understanding, to develop what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit? Where does that power come from? It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from an increase of head knowledge. It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've talked about this before, the form of the Holy Spirit. If you live a life and it is truly a spirit-filled, spirit-led life, the form will look like Jesus, who is by far the most spirit-filled person ever to walk the face of the earth. You want to know what a, what a true spirit-filled person looks like? Read about Jesus. Just pour over the four Gospels. That's the most spirit-filled man you'll ever see. That's the pattern. That's the form. We talked about the fruit, that spiritual fruit that we're, that we're supposed to be seeing and, and able to see, that the Lord grows in us. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I want to direct you also to James chapter 3. Read the first four or five verses of James chapter 3. The verse the, It's not up there. But jot that down and go back and look at it because Paul talks about, or James talks about wisdom that's earthly and wisdom that's from above and the wisdom that's from above is further evidence of spiritual fruit and it's a fascinating read and great for our understanding. The form looks like Jesus. The fruit is that spiritual fruit that the Lord grows in the spirit-filled life but then there's also the function. And we asked the question in previous studies, why is it that we would need a second baptism? Why would we need that outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Why would we need that at all? Because, gang, it empowers us for this purpose, for witnessing and for service. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are about. Paul, in describing the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, talks about the body fitting together. He talks about that also in Ephesians 4. How each one has their gift and you fit together and you grow together in maturity and you're serving each other by these gifts and by this power. The outpouring of the Spirit of Christ in us is so important today because we don't want to be holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. There is a power to live this life that the Lord bestows on us as He grows us and nurtures us. I don't want to have the form without the fruit and without the function. I want to be a witness. I want to be a servant. And I want to see that spiritual fruit growing in my life. And so it's a picture of that. As Joshua and the people come into the promised land, they cross that Jordan, and they come into a land that is fruitful, don't they? Remember the grapes of Eshcol? That they brought back from the first time when the spies were sent into the land. They brought back these grapes on a pole that two men had to carry. They were so huge. One of the interesting things to me is to see there are a lot of uh, different carvings in Israel when you go there. uh, Especially made out of olive wood. And there was one olive wood carving that I saw. And it was these two little guys with a pole and this massive thing of grapes hanging between them. And I thought, wow, what a great picture. The fruitful land crossing over and getting into that land that is fruitful where the presence of the Lord is there at the tabernacle at Shiloh. But remember this, gang. Before crossing the Jordan, before entering into, crossing into that second baptism, that picture that we talked about, two and a half tribes said, we're happy here. We don't want to cross over. 
We've already seen Og and, and Sihon. We have these two kings, the Moabites and the Amorites. We've taken them out with, with the help of Moses leading us and the Lord. So we just want to stay here. Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh said, this is a good land. We don't want to cross the Jordan. We want to stay put right here. And effectively, gang, they rejected their portion in the land of Canaan that the Lord had prepared for them. They agreed their men, however, would go forward and fight with the rest of the sons of Israel. And so they did, which brings us right up to this chapter. They have now fought. They have now secured the land. All of the tribes of Israel, including Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, the rest of the nine and a half tribes, they have their land. It's secure. And so Joshua comes to these three tribes and he says, All right, you kept your part of the bargain. Now you can head home. You came into a land. You conquered all the enemies. There were brilliant military campaigns, spirit-filled, spirit-led campaigns, most of them, except for one or two that didn't go so well. But finally they took possession of the land, and back in Joshua 21, verse 45, it tells us not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of all Israel failed. All came to pass. And that's the way it is with the Lord. We talked about on Sunday how everything will be fulfilled. Every promise will be given. Every single thing the Lord ever said He would do, He will do, He is doing. It's going to be completed. Now after several years, Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, they head back to their flocks and their fields, their wives, their children on the east side of the Jordan. But once they get back there, they start to worry. There's a divide between us. There's a problem here. Something they probably hadn't really processed or thought about before. We're on this eastern side, but there's this great river between us, and the rest of our brothers are over there. And Shiloh is over there. The tabernacle's over there. The Ark of the Covenant and the brazen altar where the sacrifices are given are over there. All the festivals are going to happen over there. The feasts, the holy days, over there. And we're over here. What if they begin to forget about us? What if they move on without us? What if we get cut off from the altar and, and the atonement? What if we lose our identity as members of the company of Israel? And so they built Ed, a massive altar there on the east side, on the bank of the Jordan River, this big, huge altar. Apparently, it was a copy of the brazen altar that stood in the tabernacle. This big altar there on the banks of the Jordan River, built up as a witness to their connection with all Israel. But as we just read, when those nine and a half tribes on the west side saw the altar, they were scandalized. They were shocked. And they immediately speculated that the two and a half tribes are going off the deep end, doing their own thing, cutting themselves off, and they speculated and assumed a worst case scenario. So they understood the tabernacle was supposed to be on the west side. There's only one tabernacle, only one, only one altar for sacrifice, not two. And so they believe that these tribes are doing their own thing. Assumption led to accusation, led to altercation, literally. And it shows us how quickly and how easily brothers get divided. Now, a couple of things I want you to understand as, as we look at this and just to think through. 
Because it is an interesting story, but the practical application to you and I and to the church today is very interesting to me. Carry this picture through that I've just kind of gone over again. I know we've talked about that. These hearsayers, these speculators, are those who are on the west side of the Jordan. Those who have crossed the Jordan. The side that we have seen or looked at as a picture of spirit-filled, spirit-led living. And they're the ones that are causing the problem. What are you saying, Rick? Are you saying someone can have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and still be divisive? That is exactly what I'm saying. You see, living a life that is Spirit-filled doesn't immediately relieve us from the flesh. And as a matter of fact, sometimes those of us who are walking in the Spirit, when we do drop back into the flesh, (laughs) it's breathtaking. Let me explain some of this. How often do you misunderstand someone else's motives? Are you a type of person who quickly speculates and assumes, thinking that you know what the other person's thinking? You know the inner thoughts, the heart of someone. Certainly we can clearly see what this other person is up to. And how often do we discover we're dead wrong? If Satan can lead brothers and sisters in Christ into speculation and assumption, he can divide us. And that, my friends, is probably the number one reason why churches divide today. It's assumption. It's speculation. It's looking at someone else who's doing it maybe a little differently than you are and saying their motive must be wrong. Therefore, let's divide. Satan loves this kind of stuff. If he can just whisper, Hey, Rick's doing something a little different on Sunday morning. What's going on there? Oh, maybe, maybe he's dipping into heresy. <laughs> Speculation. Well, the worship team looks different now. They're, they're not playing the same songs they used to play. Well, what's going on here? Speculation. Well, she hasn't been to church for three weeks. Clearly, spiritually, she's messed up. Speculation. He made a decision and said it was the Lord, and I don't think it was the Lord. Speculation. We do not have, listen to me, we do not have the power to know what truly is in the heart of another. Only the Lord has that power. Oh, we can discern, we can listen, we can seek the Lord in all matters. And we can certainly go back to the Word to test everything. But we do not know what is in the heart of another person. Only they truly know that. Four problems here with, the, with these tribes on the western side of the river. Number one, they are fueled by rumor. They're fueled by rumor. Look back at verse 11. It tells us in verse 11, the sons of Israel heard it said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. Look at that. The first few words there in verse 11. The sons of Israel heard it said... Literally, heard said. The sons of Israel heard said. Hearsay. It's hearsay. They don't know the facts. They have no idea what's truly going on. It's nothing more than rumor. Be careful what you hear. Especially if it's not first person. If you're hearing about something that's going on from the second person or third or fourth or fifth person, granted it may be because you all need to pray for someone, but if you're hearing about this, Be careful what you hear 
It's hearsay. The Israelites heard it said. They didn't see it. No one had inquired about it. They just heard it said. And this is the seed of division. I heard so and so did such and such. Well, I heard he and she did this and that. Be careful what you hear. Ezekiel chapter 7. This interesting verse. Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 26. The Lord is giving through the prophet Ezekiel a judgment against Israel. And he says the following. I'll read this to you. Disaster will come upon disaster. And rumor will be added to rumor. They will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. Let me read that again. Listen closely. They will seek a vision from a prophet, a false prophet, but the law will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. What he's saying is when rumor begins to fly, judgment takes place. Vision becomes weak. The law itself is lost. Godly counsel fails when I start listening to rumor and hearsay without the facts. Which is one reason why we keep coming back to the Word again and again. So that what we hear in our ears has a sounding board in the Word. They're fueled by rumor. They are, number two, fired up to go on a rampage. Verse 12 going on says, When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. It's absolutely stunning. Didn't anybody think to send someone over to check it out? But they engage, they're ready to go to war. They're ready to fight. They're gearing up for this thing. They're fired up to go on a rampage and they leap right past checking things out. And this is very typical of the way so often we behave. We leap past the facts in reaction. It's called being a knee-jerk. And we've got to be careful in the Spirit-filled life not to act, not to walk that way. Because anger tends to get us ahead of information. Again, assumption leads to accusation, leads to altercation. And if I've learned anything about dealing with people over the years, it's this. It's to slow down. It's just to slow down. I get bad news, comes in the form of an email, a phone call, a message, something wrong, something bad is going to happen, oh no, and my, my, my immediate reaction is I've got to fix it, I've got to do something, I've got to make this all right. And over and over in my ministry life I have found when I jump to conclusions, when I try to fix something quickly I make a bigger mess of it. But when I wait, when I pause, when I take time to pray and seek godly counsel then the decision that's right that's that's made is a right one Proverbs 18.13 says he who gives an answer before he hears it is folly and shame to him to give an answer before you before you know what's really going on it's folly and shame Jesus puts it this way Matthew 18.15 if your brother sins go and show him his fault in private First you go mano y mano, one on one. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Case closed. It's over. If he does not listen to you, then wipe him out. No, no, I'm sorry. It says if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Jesus is so clear about this. You get the facts down before you make a decision, before you make a a move, before you allow your assumptions to lead into an altercation. You better know the truth. 
And if going one-on-one doesn't do it, you grab someone else, who is a witness, by the way, who has seen this happen, and the two of you go together and say together, listen, brother, sister, we've both seen this. Help us understand what's going on. Jesus goes on from there and he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Stage three. First you go. Second, you take witnesses. You still try to work it out. If they're still refusing to listen, still walking in sin, still against you, then then you involve the church. But again, gang, the whole purpose of this is still to right the wrong, to correct the situation. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That whole process Jesus gives us is slow down. Count to ten. Make sure you know all the facts. Number three, it gets worse. Fueled by rumor, fired up to go on a rampage, they fall into self-righteousness. Which is the next step so often happens in Christianity. Watch this. Chapter, uh, verse 16 of chapter 22. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? What you're doing is wrong before the Lord. How do they know? They still don't even really know what they're doing. Verse 17. Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he'll be angry at the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. And then he says, listen listen to this, verse 19, If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord. (laughs) Our land, the righteous land, the good land. Come over with us and take possession among us. Now listen, only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us. See how easily they now involve themselves in this righteousness? If you do this, not only are you violating your relationship with the Lord, you're violating us in our holiness and self-righteousness. How dare you? They have now engaged themselves. They fall into self-righteousness. They immediately assume here that the Lord is on their side and that their side is the right side. And I have been guilty of that way too many times to count in my life. How quickly we're victimized, we're offended. Oh man, how could they do that to me? To the Lord, I mean. And to me and the Lord together, the two of us. How can they do that to us? Remember back in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua came face to face with an interesting man with a sword drawn and he goes up to him we talked about this it's a Christophany from those Old Testament appearances of the Lord of Jesus and Joshua says this question he says are you for us or for our adversaries and I love the answer Joshua 5.14 no wait a minute it wasn't a yes or no question (laughs) it was either or are you for us or for them and the answer is no I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord in other words there's one right side God's side is the only right side it's not my side or your side it's his side is the right side so the question is not is God on my side the question is will I align myself with him and be on his side again When spirit-led people flare up in the flesh, we tend to use the name of the Lord with dangerous liberality. 
And I think partially it's not because of a bad motive. It comes from that place of being so used to talking about the Lord. So used to saying, oh, the Lord was saying this to me. Oh, the Lord told me the other day. And He does. And we're listening and we're learning to listen. Oh, the Lord, He he spoke this into my life. And then suddenly when we are in conflict with someone, well, the Lord told me what you're doing is absolutely wrong. Well, the Lord didn't explain this to me. Well, thus saith the Lord. You've got to be careful when you say, thus saith the Lord. You better be sure it's the Lord. In fact, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, commandment number 3 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that's not just saying, Oh my God. It's saying, gang. The name of God is on my side. God says this. The Lord told me that. Be careful. Let's say that the Lord packs a wallop, doesn't it? I mean, when you can say to someone, well, the Lord told me this, how can they argue? <laughs> the Lord led me this direction. The Lord said, that, the Lord told me that you were wrong in this situation. We try to co-opt the Father. It's a misuse of God's name when we drag His name into vain speculation about others. And I'm not saying we don't listen to the Lord, and I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't speak directly to us. He does. What I am saying is when we are speculating, be careful about drawing God's name into it. Now, Reuben, Gad, and Half Manasseh were wrong to build an altar in the first place. The Lord never told them to do it. And granted, there wouldn't have been a problem at all if they had just crossed over with their brothers. In fact, part of the problem is you've got a group of people who went all the way with the Lord. And you've got another group of people who didn't want to go that far with the Lord. And so there is this river dividing them. And we could do a whole study just on the, the behavior of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. Because they do take a carnal approach. They are a picture in many ways of carnal Christians. What do you mean? I'm talking about those who... Well, turn to 1 Corinthians real quickly. Let me show you something. Just so you understand what I'm saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, which is a church that has great gifts... But they're incredibly carnal. You know what I mean by carnal? When you hear of chili con carne, we're talking meat, we're talking flesh. Flesh driven people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh or carnality, as to infants in Christ. Now, note, he does say in Christ. We're talking about carnal Christians. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. Since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Paul says, you want to know the number one sign of, of a carnal Christian? It's a, it's a person who places emphasis on a man. Any man. A person who overemphasizes man instead of the Lord, instead of Jesus. Carnal Christians. And there are carnal Christians, going back to Joshua, there are those, gang, who are maybe young in their faith, maybe immature in their faith, maybe haven't walked that long in their faith, and are still trying to struggle with the whole flesh and, and spirit thing. The reality is we all still struggle with the flesh. But you do grow in the Lord, don't you? I mean, I hope you do. 
hope we're all growing in the Lord. I hope that we're seeing more and more spiritual fruit in our lives and we're becoming more spiritual Christians and less carnal Christians. But there are both. And oftentimes the divide goes right up the middle. But I'm saying all this for this reason tonight. I believe that I'm speaking mostly on Wednesday nights. I have an assumption when people are showing up midweek in addition to Sunday mornings. My assumption is that I'm probably speaking to more spirit-led folks. People who are really drawn to what the Lord is doing and, and you can't get enough. You want more. And understanding that and understanding this principle that assumption leads to accusation which leads to altercations there's something I want to invite you to join me in doing and it's been on my heart for the last well since we got back from Israel it's been heavy on my heart about this fellowship something I want to invite you to engage in at the bridge and that something is love I want to invite you to love to be people who are about the business of loving here at the bridge. What do you mean? Jesus said in Matthew 22:37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, Jesus says, depend the whole law and the prophets. Love. Loving God and loving people. Now at the bridge, we spend a lot of time focusing on loving God. In our worship, in our study, in our discussions, we love the Lord. We want to love the Lord. We want to be about the Lord. Interested in the things of the Lord. Loving God. But there's another aspect of it that can so easily and quickly slip away. And that is loving people. Lovers of God are not truly lovers of God unless they are lovers of people. Turn over to 1 Peter. I want to read to you one, what I believe to be one of the most important verses for a growing church. 1 Peter, toward the end of the New Testament. A single verse, but I want you to turn there and consider this with me tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 22. This caught my attention several years ago when I was reading through this letter and, and teaching it and I haven't been able to let go of it and I keep coming back to it again and again he says since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart let me read that again listen since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart. Peter describes in this one verse the process by which we can really know if we're spirit-led. You know, the number one sign of someone who is walking in the Holy Spirit, who is led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's love. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not healing. It's not gifts of the miraculous. It's love. That's how you know, number one, that someone's walking in the Spirit of God. You will see love in their interactions with people. You cannot have the Spirit of God and not be a loving person. You may remember the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love. It's the first one. All the others flow out of it. But Peter says something here, and I don't want you to miss this. He says... Since you have, number one, sincere love of the brethren, 
Then he says, number two, fervently love one another from the heart. What he's saying is move on. Sincere love of the brethren. In the Greek, that's Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Since you have brotherly love, he says, I want you to go on to fervent love from the heart. What's that? Agapao. Agape in the Greek. Unconditional love. Says you, you've done a beautiful thing. You've, you've, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for brotherly love. I see it in you, in your interaction. I can see you care about each other. I see you got meals on wheels. I understand you got a flowers ministry and you got a prayer chain. And I see these things going on in your fellowship. That's great. I see brotherly love. But Peter says you got to move on from that. There is a deeper and more important place that this church fellowship needs to go. We need to move from brotherly love to unconditional love. It's time to move from Philadelphia. No matter how sincere or well-intentioned, our assumptions and speculations can knock Philadelphia right off its feet. How is it that brothers who seem to walk together in unity... Brothers who seem to love each other can so quickly be at odds because the love that we're sharing is Philadelphia and it's not agape. If it were agape, our immediate reaction to any harm brought to us by another person would not be assumption, it would be forgiveness. It would be recognition that the other person, though they may have done something to hurt us, our assumption is that they did not intend to. Our assumption is something in their life pained them so much that it ended up spilling onto me. And I've got to forgive that. That's fervent love from the heart. That's agape love. Agape love makes no assumptions. And we look around and in any church fellowship you begin to understand, especially over time, that you're not the same. That we're not all wired equally. Our experiences are as diverse as our sizes and shapes, our likes and dislikes. But the only way to cross the Jordan that may flow in between us, the only way to get across the divide is agape. Unconditional love of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of what you do to me, and hear me on this, no matter what you do to me or say against me, if I love you with agape love, I will forgive it. I will be able to do that. And by the way, reading the next couple of verses there in 1 Peter, without the word, we wouldn't even know what the difference is between brotherly love and unconditional love. Peter goes on, he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. What word, Peter? Love. Not brotherly love. No, the word that was preached to you, the word that you hear time and time again, hopefully here at the bridge, over and over and over, the word that you hear is unconditional love. Agape. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking honestly about an altar. I'm talking about a witness. You see, to get from this place of brotherly love to move into the place of unconditional love, we need a witness. We need a witness. Go back to Joshua chapter 22 and listen to this in verse 31. Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, sons of Manasseh, Today we know 
that, in, that the Lord is in our midst. Because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord, the one that we assume. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And so Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben, from the sons of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, and to the sons of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the word pleased the sons of Israel. And the sons of Israel blessed God. And they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar Ed. Witness. Witness. For they said, is a witness between us that the Lord is God. We have a witness between us. We have something that stands on that divide, that supposed divide, that area where we could end up divided in our relationships, in our lives. We have a witness that stands right there. And my friends, it's an altar. It is the altar of Calvary. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what God did was He not only defined agape in the Scriptures for us so that we could see there was a difference. He defined it in the Word. He lived it out physically, graphically represented before us on the cross so that we could look at the cross and realize whatever anybody ever does to me, I look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, if I can do that to Jesus and He forgives me and loves me, then whatever somebody does to me, I can forgive and love them. I have a witness. I have a witness that attests to the fact that Jesus Christ loves me unconditionally and that's what love looks like and that's the love that Peter says you need to move into away from this brotherly love stuff that's good, that's nice, it's superficial but it's nice what's called for in church fellowship in family, in friends, in our lives is agape that is love that is completely unconditional. We have a witness, the cross of Jesus. It testifies to God's love. It reminds me what unconditional love looks like. It releases me from the flesh that I might learn how to love in the Spirit. And it's the cross, gang, that calls me to self-sacrifice instead of speculation. That's what I meant when we started. That the blood of Christ is between us. It's His blood between me and my wife that connects us and keeps us loving each other. It's His blood between me and my friends, between Spencer and I. His blood is there that even if we misunderstand each other, even if I say or do something, that Spencer kind of goes, man, that just doesn't seem like something Rick would do to me. Even if that happens, Spencer can step back and go, but you know what, we got the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and draws us together into agape. In Hebrews 12, verse 3, I always think of this verse, for for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think you're having a tough time maybe with someone in your life, friend or family member who seems to be against you? You feel like there's division there? The Hebrew writer says... Hey, consider Jesus. You think you got it bad? Consider what He put up with so that you will not lose heart. And He says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And my friends, until we have, we've got no cause to assume anything 
about anyone. Amen? So I invite you to lead the charge from moving from brotherly to unconditional love. Let's be those who are alive in the Spirit of Christ and loving the way Jesus loved. And Lord, to do this we ask for your grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit. We ask for your love to be outpoured on us. We pray, Father, that the love we can give, this agape love, comes from the overflow of the love that you've poured into our hearts. And Lord, tonight, I pray right now, and I want to take this, this stand for the Bridge Christian Fellowship, because that's, that's the group that we have gathered here. And I believe you want this love for your whole church, for your entire kingdom. But Father, in this small little flock that you have brought together, I take this stand tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to move from Philadelphia to Agape. Father, I invite you to do what it takes in this fellowship to teach us how to love in a way we have never loved before. To fill us with such grace and mercy and forgiveness that the only thing people can say about us is, wow, those people have the Spirit of Christ. Teach us, Father, to love, to truly love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.